MSW Media. Season four of How We Win is here. For the past four years, we've been making history in critical elections all over the country. And last year, we made history again by expanding our majority in the Senate, beating election-denying Republicans in crucial state house races, and fighting back a non-existent red wave. But the MAGA Republicans who plotted and pardoned the attempted overthrow of our government now control the House, thanks to gerrymandered maps and repressive anti-voter laws. And the chaotic spectacle we've already seen shows us just how far they will go to seize power, dismantle our government, and take away our freedoms. So the official podcast of The Persistence is back with season four. There's so much more important work ahead of us to fight for equity, justice, and our very democracy itself. We'll take you behind the lines and inside the rooms where it happens with strategy and inspiration from progressive changemakers all over the country. And we'll dig deep into the weekly news that matters most and what you can do about it with messaging and communications expert, co-founder of Way to Win, and our new co-host, Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. So join Steve and I every Wednesday for your weekly dose of inspiration, action, and hope. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. And And this this is is How We Win. Thanks to MedKline for supporting Cleanup on Aisle 45. If you suffer from shoulder pain or nighttime acid reflux or both, then MedKline is right for you. Get 20% off and a better night's sleep today at MedKline.com slash cleanup. rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich, and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Clean Up on Aisle 45. This is episode 92. It is Wednesday, October 19th, and back from the other side of the world, almost, (laughs) is real-life lawyer, my good friend, Andrew Torres. Andrew, how was it? Oh, my gosh. I had an amazing time. Uh, The only thing that would have made it better is if you could have been there with me, but um, maybe next time, but... uh... (laughs) May, perhaps next time. And I'm Allison Gill, everyone, by the way, AJ. And I'm Andrew Torres, back from Europe. I will tell you, you know, it, it feels like, because, you know, wherever I go, and, and you know, you, you meet people and they ask what you do. And, you know, and I get to explain how my job changed once, you know, my country elected a criminally insane game show host as president. And, and like, I have been using that line, but I got to tell you, like, 
2017, 2018, 2019, there was like a, you know, 50-50 shot, one in three chance that it was going to go south. It's, it is now like a uniform laugh line throughout Europe. Like, I, I, I feel like the global tide is turning. Let's hope. I, I would think so. And, you know, that's part of cleaning up on aisle 45 is to get the world to come with you. So that's good news to hear. Uh, and also, I want to thank all the people who come with us over on Patreon because <laughs> you guys are why this show can exist in the first place. Um, very happy to get an ad read today, but, you know, generally we don't. And uh, and that is why our, our patrons are so, so important. And and before we get to the names, I wanted to say we were going to have a patron call this Friday, but I have been invited back to the White House. So I am, yeah, I'm going to be busy on Friday. Uh, normally, anybody else, I'd be like, fuck off, I'm doing a thing. <laughs> but, you know, when the president's like, you should come and talk about stuff, I was like, all right, uh, I should probably say yes to that. So we're going to see if we can get it going um, probably the following week. We'll let you know. Uh, on the next uh, on the next cleanup, uh, but it'll be very soon, and I look forward to seeing everybody. And I want to welcome our new patrons. We've got Salty Sw- Swabian, Gary Myers, James Carl, NKWIW, um, Nick Wu, maybe Brenny's Music, very cool. Dave Barron, Glorian Franco, Alexis Devoto, Murmur Tapiridae, Christine Banfield, no Banfield, Christine Banfield. Ian Abel, Gerald Simpkins, Marcel Duanau, Bambi, hi Bambi, love your fur, Ryan Collis, about time Ryan that we saw you over here, our friend from the Beans, North Chiller, and Adam Curry. And a thank you to Real Obfuscated Politics. Yeah, good way to note it, like, I, we could do an entire episode on how they turned into, like, discount from takes on... 538. But anyway, Real Obfuscated Politics, Bradley, Drea Harris, Margie Ann Lane, Grow Pop Ganderfin, love that, Michael Holohan, Junk Bonds and Junk Law, fine, we'll, we'll make our own Supreme Court with hookers and flapjacks and precious little cinnamon buns, mm, buns, <laughs> <laughs> Bill Barnum, Hunter Kinsey, Robert Morton, Judy Cooper, Chrissy Carter, Paul Martin, and Roland, R-O-E land. So Roland, the land of Roe v. Wade. I like to think maybe that's what it's a call out for, but uh, better times. So thank you all so much. And again, to get on this list, just head on over to patreon.com slash aisle45pod, A-I-S-L-E 45-P-O-D, and we will read your name uh, no matter how ridiculous or wonderful or crazy or just, you know, name e it is i wonder if they allow you to put swears in there i feel like we've seen some swears i think we have and uh remember you know this is uh if, I, you know if you're an allison fan you get you get your full-on uh dose <laughs> of swears all the time but but you know if you're if you're an oa fan this is uh this is where i speak unfiltered so <laughs> <laughs> yeah all <and> right <laughs> we're gonna talk today about a couple of uh two these are a few of my favorite things First of all, the ban and sentencing recommendation oh, from the Department gosh. of Justice, which is just fire. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the Department of Justice's full appeal to the 11th Circuit uh, about the rest of the documents and the rest of Judge Cannon's order, not just those classified documents. But they, you know, they filed that separately because of the urgency of the classified documents. But uh, we'll talk about how everything really is urgent when it comes to a criminal investigation. Yeah. 
and the same jurisdiction stuff applies. Uh, it, you know, it's that, I really doubt the 11th Circuit's going to come back and say, well, you know, she didn't have jurisdiction for the classified stuff, but she she does for this. I, I, I don't think you can separate out the jurisdiction, equitable jurisdiction like that. Um, but before we get to that, I just want to mention really quickly, because this is so funny, during, <laughs> j- during John Durham's closing arguments, the judge was like, yeah, 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 yeah. Can you just, just wrap it up? Like, they played the Oscar music. And someone in the, in the wings with a hook, yeah. Yeah, because he was just going off on, some, you know, stuff that just made no, had nothing. It was totally irrelevant. And, the, and the, the, the judge was like, yeah, 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 come on. So the jury is deliberating. I give them, I give them until uh, Tuesday uh, close of business to, to make their determination, which will be yesterday if you're listening to this. Um, on Wednesday, and so I think probably by the time this episode drops, we might have an acquittal. But I, you know what? I gave the Sussman a zero percent chance of acquittal or a zero percent chance of conviction. I give this maybe a twenty percent chance of conviction because there's there's four counts here. There were five, but right in the middle of trial, the judge dismissed one of them, saying that is literally the opposite of a lie. Um, so uh, you know, I, I just think. There was zero chance on Sussman. I give this about twenty chance. We'll we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Eighty twenty is my is my thought. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I mean, I I, I I'm happy to round down to zero, and uh, I think all signs are pointing in that direction. But you you know who's not <laughs> gonna round down to zero <laughs> is our uh, our A story. Stephen K. Bannon, uh, having been uh, convicted of uh, failure to uh, show up in connection with a subpoena issued by the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. And uh, now it's time to sentence his ass. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the DOJ has um, pulled no punches here. <laughs> no, no, they, they really haven't. And let me see if I can find. Do you, first of all, do you have any favorite quotes off the top? Because I have one. I just need to locate it here because it's so good. Sure. <laughs> and I have a question about it, too. Because, you know, they basically say, you know, I'll look for it here, but they basically say, you know how his, you know, what his defense was um, couldn't be used at trial, but now it can be used at sentencing. Do you remember that little bit there? It is so funny because you were going to say favorite quote and I'm like, well, but mine is kind of geeky and law oriented, but I, I should have known we would have gone for a similar thing. So bottom of page two, beginning of page three, where it says, at the defendant's trial, the will the reason he willfully defaulted, that is, why Bannon deliberately chose not to comply with the subpoena, was not relevant. Now, at sentencing, it that's is. That's the favorite. That's my favorite. <laughs> it really is. The court can and should consider the defendant's motive as part of his history and characteristics and as part of the nature and circumstances of the offense. And and again, let me say so I I love this because I love succinctness in legal writing directness in legal writing it is something i strive for it is something if you are a listener to this show you know that I, it remains aspirational in many instances <laughs> the way you I, write and the I, way you talk are very very I, different I, I trend towards verbosity uh but um it, it this is this is one of those circumstances where i think like the simple little punch of yeah no now we get to argue this by the way um is is just dead on um it's 
completely true as a matter of law. And it, it just reminds the judge in this case that, like, look, you've been dealing with a bad faith actor this entire time. And we've played nice and we sat here and we stomached his idiocy um, and, you know, and we put up with it. But but now it's time to pay the piper. Yes. And this is where I wanted to get because, you know, we covered this a little bit on the Daily Beans on Tuesday, yesterday. But I, I didn't want to get too into the weeds on sentencing guidelines because there seem to be a lot of people very upset on social media that he's only going they're only recommending six months. They should lock him up for life and throw away the key. Why isn't he getting the maximum two years? Uh, because, you know, I said he's actually getting the maximum they can recommend per the sentencing guidelines. So can you break down a little bit for us into the weeds, into the wonk, uh, why the sentencing guidelines are different from a maximum statutory sentence and why the the six months here is the maximum? And then we'll talk about the fine in a minute because that's extra fucking funny. But I, I really I want folks to like truly understand. And I actually have some questions, too, because they say these sentences may be served concurrently. And I think that's why six months is the maximum per sentencing guidelines that they're able to recommend. And then finally, I want to know and I, you know, I, I know the answer to this, but I think we should explain or talk about why a judge can go outside of those guidelines and and they usually go less than right but the the doj here makes a really strong point that the maximum should be the case the maximum guidelines should be the case in this sentencing yeah um that is a lot to unpack so um but but let's let's see if we can do that okay um i i guess i want to first tackle the advisory question right and this was settled at the Supreme Court with a series of cases, United States versus Booker, and then the companion fan-fan litigation. And uh, those cases decided that um, ultimately as a matter of separation of powers, right, that at the end of the day, the judiciary had to retain final discretion to award a sentence. So in other words, you can say, hey, you know, look, um, from a congressional perspective or from a guidelines perspective, right, which is drafted by the United States Sentencing Commission, uh, which is put together by uh, a, a commission of judges, right? And so you can say, hey, we think that this is how you ought to reach a result in particular cases. But at the end of the day, the guidelines are advisory. Now, <laughs> If you want to depart from the guidelines, you must write a special memorandum, right? You must justify, judge. yeah, as the judge, why you are going to depart from a guidelines range. You are 100% correct that I, I cannot recall. I, I know of a couple of instances, um, and, and I know about them so, sort of collaterally from litigation, uh, that uh, it are um, child pornography cases, right? But outside of a handful of cases, a, a request for a non-guideline sentence means a request for less than what the guidelines state. So, so here's how the guidelines work. We've sort of talked about that before. You get assigned uh, to a particular column based on whether you are a repeat offender or not, right? And so you're in column one if you are a first-time offender, or if you're an offender who has been pardoned by the president, right? 
Um, that that makes that conviction having never happened. So, uh, and then you are assigned a row on that table on the basis of a couple of different things. First, what you do is you figure out what the base offense level is for the crime that you've committed. And here, the crime that was committed is 2 USC 192, right? Every person having been summoned as a witness by the authority of either House of Congress to give testimony or produce papers uh, and who willfully makes default shall be deemed guilty of a misdemeanor punishable by a fine of not more than $1,000 nor less than $100 and imprisonment in common jail for not less than one month nor more than 12 months. Okay, so the, the important thing here is that this is, and we covered this when Bannon was referred over by the 1-6 committee to the DOJ and when the DOJ decided to prosecute Bannon and not prosecute Mark Meadows. And uh, we said at the time, right, this is the congressional judgment, right, of what the penalty should be for people who tell them to go fuck themselves, right? And, and Congress could easily amend this, right? They could amend to USC 192 to say the penalty for telling us to go fuck ourselves is, you know, death, right? Is, is 30 years in prison. I, I mean, you know, like that, that's just a law. Like they, <laughs> Congress can pass laws. Um, they have decided that this is not a serious offense. And so this was never about making Bannon serve his time. This was always about holding Bannon accountable to the rule of law. Yes. And I also want to bring up, just to interject here, the case of, of Susan McDougal. A lot of people are trying to compare the 18 months she spent in jail because she wouldn't testify to this, um, saying, well, why did she get 18 months and Bannon only got, you know, is up for six months? And there's a, there's a big difference. And we don't have to go too into the weeds on this. But that was civil contempt. She failed to show up for a grand jury subpoena, in which case the Department of Justice can make a recommendation to a judge and the judge can impose that or up or down. Um, we saw it with the fines for Donald Trump, you know, uh, not showing up to be deposed in his civil suit, I believe. Right. So that's civil contempt. And so what the judge did in that matter was they they imprisoned Susan McDougal until she complied with the grand jury subpoena. This is a congressional subpoena. It is criminal contempt. And because it's criminal contempt and it's a crime and it's a misdemeanor, it's a statute, like you said, it is subject to the sentencing guidelines that are, that are put together. Uh, what Congress decides, they can amend it. Um, but it's, a, it's, a, it's apples and oranges when we talk, to, talk about these two different kinds of contempt. Now, you can uh, say all day, and I will say this, that the punishment should be the same. Uh, and that's when we could talk about the third kind of contempt, which is inherent contempt, but there's no, you know, constitutional due process in place. Although I think Ted Lieu put together or put forth a resolution. It was never passed. But those are two very different things, two very different, different kinds of contempt. But I do agree that being co-equal branches of government, that they should, they should be on par with each other. They're not. But that is because Congress has decided the punishment can't exceed six months for, for, for somebody who doesn't have a, a criminal history. Yeah, so let's unpack that. <laughs> you, you might think criminal contempt, that sounds much more serious than civil <laughs> contempt. Um, but, but actually, it's, it's the reverse, right? And the reason it's the reverse is because when you are held in civil contempt, 
That means the court itself, pursuant to its inherent authority, is saying you're not complying with our rules. And they have absolute discretion to enforce their rules, right? So they can throw you in jail, put out. A, they think about this in a in a very very practical sense, right? Um, you are summoned to appear for testimony, for a deposition, or to appear at court, and you just tell the court exactly what Bannon said here. Like, <laughs> nice try. Uh, I'm going to stay at home and. Uh, you know, watch Better Call Saul instead, right? And they, they can absolutely go out, uh, get a bench warrant for your arrest, um, have you dragged into court, and then say, okay, well, guess what? You're here now. And then you're like, okay, well, I'm here, but, you know, you can't pry the words out of my throat. Well, okay, maybe cooling off a little bit of time in, in prison will, uh, you know, help those words come out a little more easy. So, yeah, so when, when people on on the interwebs say, if it were me or you and we didn't show up to court for a subpoena, we'd be in jail. And it's like, yeah, that's correct. That's, that is correct. Right. Um, but Bannon isn't not showing up to a federal grand jury or court. He's not showing up to a congressional subpoena. They make a criminal referral and criminal contempt comes into play, which is subject to congressional sentencing guidelines. Yeah, and, 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 the, and the, the way to think about that is, Civil contempt is corrective. It is designed to get you to change your behavior. And so you are always in control of it, right? So Susan McDougall spent 18 months because she did not want to testify, right? That is at some level, you can argue about how voluntary it is, but that is her choice. And and she could purge that contempt at any time by doing what the court says. Whereas Bannon, this is punitive. Right. There's nothing he can do. He can... Yeah, that's exactly right. And so uh, it's not intended to compel your testimony. It's intended to punish you for telling us to fuck off. That's exactly right. So how do we figure out where you are on the table? You go to the sentencing guidelines manual. You look up the section that applies to your criminal offense, and that will tell you what the baseline offense level is. Now, here, (laughs) that is a little bit confusing because almost nobody ever gets sentenced under under 2 USC 182 because it's such a straightforward statute right like because uh this the, this is the first trial that i can recall in in you know in recent memory uh because you know the elements are you have to show that somebody didn't show up and you have to show that it wasn't an accident right that it was willful um, and usually people don't make you go to court to prove that, um, unless you're Steve Bannon. So, um, so what you do is you, you start off with that, uh, baseline offense level in the sentencing guidelines. The, the one that seems like it's the closest is 2J1.1, uh, which applies to contempt generally. Um, and, um, you know, there there are a bunch like obstruction of justice is a 14. Um, a 14 is, is pretty significant. Uh, but, you know, again, remember, this particular statute describes itself as a misdemeanor. Right. And so you don't want to, you know, be gilding the lily and say that you should be using the obstruction of justice when there is a really clear 2J1.5, failure to appear by a material witness. And this this happens, I, I've seen this happen quite a bit, where they where the, you have to go to the closest kind of offense. I know recently, 
somebody pled guilty to seditious conspiracy and their sentencing guidelines were 51 to 65 months. And I said, how can it be so low? And they say, well, we've got to look at the next closest thing, which is treason, but that's not this. So obstructing an official proceeding, we're going to start at 26. And then we can go down a couple of levels because had they gone with treason, you'd be putting someone away for pleading guilty for far too long. So it's there's there seems to be an art to it as well. Yeah, that that's right. And remember that the more the government appears to be coming in uh, in such a way that that shows that the sentencing guidelines are, you know, disproportionately harsh and cruel, uh, the, the more that you wind up with um, a pretty good argument by the defendant to argue that that, OK, well, if that's what the sentencing guidelines should say, then the sentencing guidelines shouldn't apply. Yeah. And right. then they can get that overturned or whatever. Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, that 2J1.5 is failure to appear by a material witness. Um, that's a base guideline offense uh, of, of four. And that's what Steve Bannon uh, says uh, that, that they should uh, apply in his case. Um, and again, the game in all of this, if you're Steve Bannon, is keeping the number in what we call zone A. Right. Because zone A is the zone that allows for probation. Right. Um, it allows you uh, to um, serve uh, all or part of your sentence uh, in, you know, a halfway home or, you know, in some kind of non-prison facility. Or home like, confinement even. Yep. Yep. Once you get into zone B, you get outside of that specific right area and you have at least some mandatory minimum time in jail right in prison so um bannon says 2j 1.5 should apply and the doj says yeah but but the the problem is is that um that that set that section right um determines uh whether right the the reason you're seized in on that is because uh it says uh, six for uh, an offense where the underlying offense is a felony for where it's a misdemeanor. Um, that that That's about being a material witness to a criminal trial. And, and here, let me quote from the DOJ's memorandum, which says, neither of which have a clear corollary in the context of a subpoena to appear for a congressional de deposition or to provide documents to Congress, right? In other words, the reason you get a lower level when you're a material witness in a misdemeanor case as opposed to a felony case is because we've established as a matter of public policy uh, that, you know, it's more serious to put felons away. Right. So you're obstructing impliedly a more significant criminal prosecution by failing to show up for somebody's felony hearing as opposed to. And then here, how do you weigh that against? a congressional committee that's investigating the former president of the United States. Um, and then I, I love this one that the DOJ notes, but even if this guideline were to apply, the defendant applies it incorrectly <laughs> claiming that the offense level is four for failure to appear in a misdemeanor prosecution uh, instead of failure to appear in a felony matter. The defendant does not explain why his refusal to appear to provide testimony and documents in relation to an event, the January 6th attack on the Capitol 
that has resulted in numerous felony charges for hundreds of individuals is analogous to a failure to appear in a misdemeanor matter. It is not. I love that. I love that. Yeah. So so folks who are saying, well, they should take into account that the committee was investigating the uh, t- the insurrection. Uh, uh, they did. Because otherwise it yeah. would be a lower sentencing guideline. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, again, um, we, we wind up with a uh, with the government making a recommendation of a six, which which, again, remains in that zone A, uh, but arguing for the top of the range for no home confinement uh, for, uh, you know, no, um, uh, you know, time in a halfway house, that 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 level of thing. There just isn't a good way uh, to, you know, get out of that particular zone A. And and again, I, I want you to think about all of this as listeners. Yes. Right. We we want Steve Bannon put away for life because he's a criminal scumbag. Um, well, don't forget, he's is... been charged on multiple fraud felonies in New York State and will be going to trial. And that's a pretty slam dunk case. So I'm I'm loving that. Um, th- this is the idea that there should be checks on how long a sentence should be for someone convicted of a couple of misdemeanors. Um, I think otherwise is probably a position that folks would be, you know, that that our progressive audience would be on board with. So, yeah, 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 definitely. Now, before Um, we before we switch gears and talk about the 11th Circuit, I have to talk about this fine because here my understanding and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, uh, Andrew, is once you're convicted, uh, uh, you go and you have an interview with like the uh, the probation office or something. And they sit down and they talk to you and they interview you and they ask about your past and your personal things and your family and your financial situation because they want to give you an opportunity to say, hey. Yeah, you know, I make $200,000 a year, but I've got a million dollar mortgage and I got six kids to feed and all this other stuff. And they take all that into account when they impose the fine upon you in the in the range of the fine that is listed in the statute. And when Bannon went in and they asked him about, <laughs> you know, he he was happy to tell him about his personal history and what he thinks and his favorite color. But when asked about his financials, he was just a dick. He's like, fuck you. I can pay the maximum fine, whatever it is. Just whatever. Fuck you. I'm not giving you my financials. I'm not giving you a look into any of my business and banks and all that shit. You can just, uh, you know what? I can afford it. I can afford it. And so uh, they hit him with the maximum fine <laughs> because he asked for it. <laughs> I I absolutely love it. And, and, and let's be honest, in addition to that, they, they put that conduct in the context of how Bannon has acted since day one, right? Since being served with a subpoena. And, and, And in fact, you know, this is bottom of page 17, beginning of page 18. Not once since he was served by the select committee with the subpoena for documents and testimony has the defendant, up to and including his guilty verdict, undertaken a serious effort to comply with his obligations under the law. Still to this day, the defendant has not produced a single document or, except precondition on making a spectacle through public testimony or in exchange for the delay and dismissal of his case, endeavored to appear for the deposition required by the subpoena. 
As Mr. Costello informed the select committee on July 9th, 2022, that was his lawyer, the defendant has not had a change of posture or of heart. His, his lawyer could not have put it more perfectly. The defendant has made a contemptuous posture throughout this episode, and his bad faith continues to this day. Yeah, and and I think that, that you know, they when they have that whole big, long, you know, probably 12 or 15 page section on let's talk about his contemptuous asshole behavior uh that's all included in there and it is part of the reason they want to be on the high end of the sentencing guideline the highest end of the sentencing guideline is because you know the only time he was ever seeming to be a little bit of co-op a little cooperative was when he you know 11th hour to try to delay or get his trial thrown out it was a quid pro quo he said he would he would give some information to Congress if they told if Congress would tell uh, the DOJ that they want to dismiss the charges against him. And then they and then they note once they realized that that was a futile endeavor, his cooperative spirit vanished in the night. Yep. And 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 si- because he was like, look, Donald Trump has waved the wand. I am no longer bound by executive privilege assertions. I can now tell you things. Uh, please, let's not have a trial and let's dismiss everything. And and even though the DOJ brings this up, even though he says the only barrier in his mind keeping him from cooperating at all, even though that is gone, he has yet to, to provide one single document or any testimony to the committee proving their whole point that it was just a quid pro quo 11th hour Hail Mary to try to get these charges dismissed. And so that all goes toward the reasonings for for recommending the maximum sentence, 30 days to six months, though they want six months and a $200,000 fine. Can you talk a little bit about the fine? Because the fine, what does it say in the statute that the fine should be? So it says in the statute that the fine should be $100 to $1,000, but that is when you decide to impose a fine in lieu of a sentence, right? When you choose to impose a sentence, you are then free to exceed kind of the statutory limit that is in uh, that the that is specified out in in two USC one ninety two. So Which that's is why hundred thousand dollars. That's right, the limit, right? right? And the, the reason, as as you said, this is another kind of uh, fantastic. Uh, okay, uh, it, it the DOJ again quotes directly from Bannon and. Um, is exactly as you put it. This is page 21. Um, Quote, rather than disclose his financial records, a requirement with which every other defendant found guilty of a crime is expected to comply, the defendant informed probation that he would prefer instead to pay the maximum fine. So be it. Mm -hmm. This court should require the defendant to comply with the bargain he proposed when he refused to answer standard questions. About his financial condition, the court should impose a $100,000 fine on both counts, the exact amount suggested by the defendant. So unlike uh, the sentences which run concurrently, uh, you can impose the fine twice for his two convictions. Um, Although it is interesting that that he would rather pay the maximum fine than show anybody his financial information. Then show where his finances come from? Gee, I wonder why that would be, hmm. right? Like, it could incriminate I, him in the New York case, maybe? I, I, <laughs> I, certainly that could be the case. I mean, but, but, but again, if Steve Bannon were not Steve Bannon, right, you could have engaged a clever lawyer who would have said, 
uh, we will provide certain redacted documents, but my but my client uh, pleads the fifth with respect to turning over financial information uh, because he is subject to an ongoing criminal investigation. You absolutely can yeah, do that. Yeah, and right? here are some reasons to consider a low fine, blah, 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 blah. But no, he didn't want to have anything to do with that. He just said, charge me, it's, bill me. Right. So they did. Yeah, well, and it will be a disappointment if um, if the judge in this case does not, uh, Judge Nichols, uh, does not take him up on his bargain and uh, and impose the full... A two hundred thousand dollar fine. Um, that judge is well within his power to do so. Um, and uh, but this and, is the same Judge Nichols that that doesn't think that fifteen twelve C two should apply. Uh, and uh, he's a yeah, little I know. little wonky. He's also um, no, I think it's Trevor McFadden who's let some of the uh, insurrectionists off the hook in bench trials. Um, I don't think Nichols has, but he's he seems to be coming under the recommended sentences, which. You know, I mean, my whole thing was I said I said three to four months, and that's what I think he might end up with. But we'll see. We will see. We will know Friday. We will see. Yep. Um, all right. We have to take a quick break, and then we're going to talk real quick about the Eleventh Circuit full appeal. The difference between that and the appeal that they just won, and that SCOTUS said that they would uphold, and uh, and this full appeal, which they filed interlocutory notice to to appeal when they said that they were going to appeal the other thing, too. We'll, we'll, we'll get into all of that right after this. Stay with us. Hey, everybody, it's AG for Clean Up on Aisle 45. I spent years living with really, really bad shoulder pain at night because I am a side sleeper, and I like a medium firm bed, as you might have heard from other commercials I do. I've tried everything out there about my shoulder pain. Nothing could help me until I discovered MedCline. If you suffer from shoulder pain, nighttime acid reflux, and GERD, or both, the MedCline patented pillow system is designed to cushion your body in a sleeping position that is supremely comfortable. It is doctor-recommended, clinically proven, to provide effective natural acid reflux or shoulder pain relief. In fact, 95% of patients reported an overall improvement in sleep quality when using MedCline, myself included. MedCline sleep systems are not just foam wedges. They're true, actual FDA medical devices registered with the FDA, doctor-recommended, clinically proven to provide relief. The patented arm pocket allows for comfortable side sleeping the entire night. You'll be enveloped in side sleeping comfort. It's fantastic. MedCline's medical-grade gel-infused foam is built to last. It provides cooling comfort, and it's an exceptional night sleep for anyone using it. MedCline products are also covered by FSA and HSA medical expense plans, so you can purchase MedCline using your health savings funds, which is so cool. Customers can set up a complimentary appointment with a MedCline sleep specialist one-on-one for personal assistance to help you find the best product uh, to assist in relieving your nighttime pain so you can sleep better. Now you can get 20% off when you go to MedCline.com cleanup. That's 20% off and a better night's sleep today at MedCline, M-E-D-C-L-I-N-E dot com slash cleanup. Again, 20% off MedCline.com slash cleanup. Everybody, welcome back to Clean Up on Aisle 45. It is time for an 11th Circuit Appellate Court Bonanza. <laughs> Aces Ranchero, 11th Circuit Countdown. Uh, here we go. What happened? Um, we had the documents case. Judge Cannon came in and said, you must have a special master based on some bullshit I just made up. So she appointed a special master. And then I'm, I'm really, really, by the way, uh, paraphrasing and, and simplifying this. And then DOJ came in and said, no, this is stupid. And Well, Trump, you know, he filed his lawsuit. Then the special master happened. DOJ came in and said, no, this is illegal. 
we need to stay on this. Judge Cannon said no. They appealed to the 11th Circuit because they said, look, at least on the classified documents, we're going to file a full appeal on her whole bullshit order later. But on these classified documents right now, risk assessment, national security risk assessment, is the utmost importance, as is our criminal investigation. There's no such thing as executive privilege here because we're the executive. Please give us uh, you know, give us a stay on part of her order. And they said, yeah, we agree with all of that. She doesn't have jurisdiction to do this. Um, and and uh, there's no executive privilege, even if she did. She doesn't meet the first Ritchie factor, which is callous disregard for constitutional rights. Um, and so they put a stay on that. And then Trump said, no, that's stupid and unfair. Supreme Court, Thomas Justice, help me. And Justice referred it to the full Supreme Court. Supreme Court says, no, nope, we agree with the 11th Circuit. Here you go, DOJ. You can have all the classified documents back for your risk assessment and your criminal investigation. We look forward to your exciting 11th Circuit appeal. No, they didn't say that. Um, But then the DOJ this past uh, Friday, October 14th, filed their full. Well, they asked for an expedited schedule and got it. And then they filed their full appeal. And it is pretty much the exact same argument uh, through and through, Andrew. It just it's like, look, look, if if jurisdiction didn't apply to the classified documents, doesn't apply to the unclassified documents. Please just overturn the entire order. Uh, and meanwhile, in the background, we've got Deary over here like, I'll just keep going until you tell me to stop. Uh, but I have one question for you, and then we can launch into the whole thing. In <laughs> in one of the differences that I found in this appeal versus the appeal just for the classified documents, other than the you know the classified documents, the nature of the documents themselves, is that in a footnote they say, oh, and by the way. Um, you remember how Trump's told, uh, you know, Cannon that there were 200,000 documents that needed to be reviewed and so it would take longer. And Judge Cannon said, yeah, you're right. Instead of November 30th, let's make it December 16th. Well, we just want to let the court know uh, that it's actually not 200,000 pages. It's 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 like 22,000 pages and 13,000 documents. Um, we're going to give Trump the benefit of the doubt that, that he says he got that number from vendors, but you know, um, we just want to let you know, it's only 22,000 pages. And I'm kind of surprised that Deary hasn't come back and said, in light of the fact that it's a 10th of the pages that you said it was, I'm going to give you a 10th of the time to review it, which would be like Andrew in four days from now. Yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm, I'm wondering if he's kind of sitting around waiting to see what the 11th circuit just, just abolishes the need, you know, moots his whole exit, not existence as a human on the earth, but his existence (laughs) as a, as a special master or, or if he's going to make a, make a change to, to this, if he's going to amend again and, you know, risk being fired or overruled again by, by judge crazy cannon. Uh, if he's going to, you know, change the the plan, the the review plan, I'm interested to see. I haven't heard from him. Yeah, a, a lot to unpack there. Let me say, as a top line, that um, this pleading and and the history behind it and what you've just described to me is perfectly consistent, and and not just perfectly consistent, but provides continuing evidence that is consistent with a DOJ that intends to indict Donald Trump in December or early January, right? And, 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 and so let's unpack kind of exactly how I get there and the additional factors that we see kind of lurking behind uh, this, you know, otherwise, I, I mean, I love 67-page, uh, 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 you know, uh, pleadings before the 11th Circuit, but, you know, not everybody wants to delve into, uh, you know, 
uh, a brief that is novella. But we can but, delve into, you know, like some Mariah Carey, like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I don't want a lot for Christmas. You know, <laughs> all I want I, for Christmas is 793, 1519 and 2071. Ta-da. I, that's I, I'm, I'm going to put that on uh, holiday repeat uh, beginning <laughs> the day after Thanksgiving. So, um. I thought your summary was excellent. The one thing that I that I want to just tweak factually be, because I think it's really really important to understand is that the DOJ actually filed the the interlocutory appeal on the merits, the full appeal on the merits of Judge Cannon having the jurisdiction to to appoint a special master in the first place first, okay? But well, didn't they file they, a notice of interlocutory appeal, not the actual appeal? The actual appeal was filed Friday. So, well, the the brief in the appeal was was what was filed. Oh, I see. Friday. Okay, yeah. so you can. So, I see. So you can file an so appeal, and is, then the briefing schedule happens. Okay. So got it. So what happened was they filed that appeal, and they did not immediately move. They did not immediately move to expedite the appeal to shorten time. To do any of that stuff. So basically what they what they the strategic decision that the DOJ made at the outset, right? And this was late September, was you know what? The Eleventh Circuit's a really conservative circuit, right? Seven Republicans, four Democrats, uh, five of those seven Republicans are Trump appointees. Uh boy, we just got hammered by this Judge Cannon idiot. Um, how many other, you know, complete Mr. Magoos are there on the 11th Circuit? We don't know. But what we're going to do is we're going to tee up our very best argument, oh. our narrowest, most important argument. So we're going to so they we're filed appeal a the notice to appeal. Right. So they so we appeal and a notice of appeal is that that's is the your appeal. appeal. And then right. they filed yeah, the that. smaller, more focused and appeal and got the absolute wonderful decision they wanted. That's right. And then yeah. moved forward they with said, their briefing. They said, "Look, um, we're gonna we, we're prepared to argue all of this before you." But but basically, the message they were sending to the Eleventh Circuit was, "If you grant us the relief we need on the confidential documents, then you know." This will all work itself out and and this will wind up being moot long before you ever have to hear this case because we'll just cooperate. And like, it's kind of bullshit that we have this special master thing here, but like, whatever. That's the signal they were sending. So did the 11th okay. Circuit know that that was the strategy? I, 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 I absolutely think that was the case. And okay. so that's why I was so excited when the 11th Circuit was like... It a whole new light on it because if the 11th yeah. Circuit knows like, Dude, this is how we're going to rule here. It, that it, that's a clear sort of, you know, and, and they and they put all of the like little bookends and glosses mm-hmm. of you know while this does not dispose how we would rule in a full case. We want to tell you there's no fucking standing in this case, <laughs> right? Like that that and I think that reassured the DOJ and they were like, okay, look, good, all is right with the world. Yeah, Judge Cannon is a fucking weirdo, Just check but it. like. Yeah. It, but 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 the system still works. The Eleventh Circuit hasn't gone off the rails. Things are going to be. Scotus fine, didn't right? go off the rails. Right. And so then they went back. And I think we would have never. I do. I think they would have never moved to expedite the appeal on this. I think we would have never heard it on the merits if Judge Cannon hadn't intervened a second time. Right. Remember, they went to and we did a. Fun, <laughs> this happened the day that I broke his. Tie. I was in Italy. I was in this just beautiful castle overlooking the Italian countryside doing wine tours and I had a lengthy breakdown of the scheduling order 
that Judge Deary, the special master, had issued in the case and why complying with that scheduling order was going to force Donald Trump to concede to the key elements of the underlying document crimes in the first place. Right. In other words, he had to sign off on an affidavit to Judge Deary that said, I attest that these are all the documents that are at issue here. I attest that everything has been returned yeah, to remember. me. remember. Or not, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, And And so it was super exciting, and we walked through it, and that day... Judge Cannon <laughs> comes stomping in. Judge Cannon comes in without a request for relief from Donald Trump, uh, without a written request <laughs> to the court for relief from Donald Trump. I mean, he may have called her at her house. Like, we do not know. That would be ridiculously inappropriate, but not inconsistent with her behavior in this case. So... Without So what we call sua sponte, on her own initiative, just having read through the docket, revises her order and says, oh, yeah, no, I never meant for my special master to do any of this. And instead, we're going to do this, this, this and this. And and that's what forced the DOJ's hand. Yeah. And and that's why you see why you see the words sua sponte italicized with the words emphasis added afterwards. Every time the (laughs) DOJ puts it in there, she just comes in sua sponte. Yeah. You know, which is, you know, nobody rang your buzzer. You know, that's pretty much what that means. I, I cannot stress how unprecedented it is. And by unprecedented, I liter- I mean that in the literal sense of uh, I've read tens of thousands of cases in my lifetime. I have, you know, litigated a hundred, you know, hundreds like I, it is I, I have never seen because a judge appoints a special master to do the stuff that she can't do. Right. Hey, I'm super fucking busy. You come in and take care of this discovery dispute, okay? And then the idea that the judge is sitting at home reading all of the pleadings filed by and between <laughs> the parties and the special master and is like, oh, no, I, I got to wade my ass into this one. Like, that never, ever, 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 ever happens. Mm. And as soon as it did, right, like we recorded a little extra five minute addendum of, hey, sorry about that last hour, the no longer being relevant, but you should know that DOJ isn't going to stand for this. And that's what happened. And, the, and so so as that happened, right, the DOJ said, OK, fine, time for us to to go back to the 11th Circuit because we're not going to let her stretch this out into December or later and like get stuck playing this Calvin ball game of like, you know, oh, you didn't touch 37th base. So, you know, not like they're like, no, okay, it's time to haul the big guns back. We didn't want to have to do this to you, uh, but we're going to go back. And that was that what what precipitated Trump's lawyers uh, to, uh, you know, think they were going to backstop of, oh, yeah, well, well, we'll go to the Supreme Court and Clarence Thomas will come down and just get rid of the whole thing. And um, as it turns out, not even Clarence Thomas was willing to uh, stick his neck out for uh, Judge Eileen Cannon, Federalist Society weirdo. So that's the background, right? This is the 11th Circuit now being called upon a second time of, hey, this judge is out of control with what she's doing. And by the way, like, that's why you see considerably more references to Magistrate Judge Reinhardt in this brief before the 11th Circuit, right? The, hey, um, you already went through and said, uh, we've taken a good hard look uh, at the doctrine of anomalous jurisdiction. 
that comes up when you have those weird corner cases where the government is jerking you around. Like, right, so, so let me give an example of an anomalous jurisdiction case, right? That is the government raids your house. Oh, we've talked about right? this. We, you know, we've yeah, talked yeah, yeah. about, and we talked about how she dropped a hint in her minute order. You know, well, why am I here? What, what, why are you bringing it to this court? Is it equitable or anomalous jurisdiction? Nudge, nudge, right. wink, wink. Uh, you know, because you know that you know, Rule Forty One G post indictment. Uh, this civil pre indictment. You can't have your cake and eat it too. I mean, you know, we've covered this nine yep. ways to Sunday, yeah, yeah. and it's like, it's, it's she's just a dumb. Bitch. Uh, I, <laughs> uh, I, yes, and and the fact so. that I'm a little bit comforted that they aren't talking to each other because I'm surprised she didn't say anomalous jurisdiction, dumb fuck, and then you know have some some you know somebody come in on Trump's team and and argue anomalous jurisdiction it would be the only one that could possibly make sense, even though it still wouldn't apply. But regardless, it's too late to make that argument. Here we are. You cannot have equitable jurisdiction about inequitable behavior, inequitable acts. And the I mean, they they do bring up the whole thing about the even if you want to argue the Presidential Records Act, that is D.C. That is the D.C. court district court. That is their jurisdiction, um, which is, you know, an old argument that we that's just now come up again in, in this in these later filings. Um, and then, of, of course, standing. I mean, it's all, yeah. you know, the order of operations in court. We can't even talk about the merits. First of all, there are none. Uh, no <laughs> one's making any irreparable harm arguments. Uh, but, you know, that still goes back to jurisdiction and standing. And I think that the important thing here, and you and I have talked about this a lot, is I didn't know when reading those initial filings that you had to meet the first Ritchie factor uh in order to even consider the other ones in in weighing whether or not you know somebody is entitled to this kind of relief equitable jurisdiction and and the 11th circuit plainly said you don't even meet the first Ritchie factor you admit you don't meet the first Ritchie factor of callous disregard for um the plaintiff's constitutional rights so i mean we'll go over the other ones for funsies <laughs> but without that one your 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 jurisdiction argument is 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 a loser. So here's why. And this is, I think, another strong illustration of just how conservatively the DOJ wanted to play this from the outset. Right. The case that the 11th Circuit cited that the DOJ did not cite in its initial application is called United States versus Chapman. It's a 1977 case from the Fifth Circuit. Now, you might go 5th, 11th, but but the, the 11th Circuit was actually spun off from the 5th Circuit in the late 70s or early 80s. Okay, so so technically you could argue that this is law of the circuit. Unlike what Judge Cannon does where she cites stuff outside of the 11th Circuit. <laughs> right, right. So I, I, I think, right, because the DOJ didn't want to get stuck in this kind of middle ground of like, Oh, well, you know, is a pre-split Fifth Circuit opinion binding on the 11th oh, Circuit? Oh, that's probably why they didn't bring it up. But but here comes here comes 11th Circuit saying... Well, once the 11th Circuit is like, we consider us to be bound by U.S. v. Chapman, and U.S. v. Chapman says, without the first factor, you're fucked. Oh, um, that's why they didn't... Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because in their first filing, they went through all the Ritchie factors. I mean, they didn't meet any of them. Uh, you know, by uh, per DOJ standards, but I, I didn't. That's a really, really interesting point 
The Department of Justice didn't want to cite Chapman because it was Fifth Circuit, and even though the Fifth Circuit, spun, or the 11th Circuit has spun off the Fifth Circuit, or vice versa, you know, 11th Circuit spun off, they didn't even want to wade into that territory because they want their case to be airtight. So they just went with all the factors. Be- because, as as I said, like I, I was wandering around having read 40 or 50 uh, anomalous jurisdiction cases. And again, there are about 200 of them in, in the history of, of, of humanity. I, I've now read all 200. Um, when I had read 40 or 50, I had found none. Uh, and, I, and I told you this, right, yeah, on the air. Yeah. I had found none in any jurisdiction anywhere that had ever exercised uh, uh, anomalous jurisdiction uh, without that first factor, callous disregard for constitutional rights. I have subsequently found at least one case outside the Fifth and Eleventh Circuits uh, in which a court nevertheless decided to exercise uh, equitable anomalous jurisdiction without that first factor present. And so, again, think about it, how that would have played out had the government made the argument that strongly. Hey, you don't get the first one. You're, you go home. Right. Then. Trump's lawyers could have come back and said, well, you know, the 11th Circuit, instead of being bound by this arcane rule from 1977, should instead prefer the more recent developments from, you know, X case. And and they would have been able to frame it as a choice, right, for the 11th Circuit to take. And uh, again, you know, why why tee that argument up when you can get the court to tell you where they, where okay. they are? Well, if the 11th yeah. Circuit is the one that brought Chapman into it when the DOJ they was are. kind of staying <laughs> away from it, well, what that tells me is they're 100% going to rule in favor of the DOJ here because whether yep. the do- documents are classified or non-classified, the, the, the defendant admitted and the lawyers admitted and Judge Cannon admitted that the first Ritchie factor was not met. That's dispositive. Is that what that word is? That is exactly right. And that is why the Chapman case is all over this brief, God. right? It, it's 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 just framed uh, different. And again, I, you take, this is good lawyering. When when you've won on uh, injunctive relief, right? That is a court saying, hey, um, Extraordinary. we know, yeah, we know we're putting ourselves out on a limb here, but we think that your arguments are likely to win were this to be evaluated on the merits. Well, then when you come before them on the merits, you should probably follow their, their guidelines. And I will tell you, I have had cases where I've given six or seven reasons why I think my client deserves injunctive relief. And the court has picked sort of the, the, the least likely one, in my view. What well, you can bet my subsequent briefings to that court. All about very, that. Very, yeah. very, <laughs> of course you do, because the court's already told you what it finds persuasive. That is amazing. So, yeah. I haven't heard that anywhere on the mainstream media. Yeah. I haven't seen it anywhere. Well, there we go. That is so That is so cool. Well, now I'm 100... Uh, I mean, I was sure before, but now it's like, well, yeah. it's, the, it's their own fucking reason. They're the ones who are yeah. citing the first Ritchie factor has to be met, uh, and and all the rest is is kind of irrelevant i mean it's not they put it all in there but it doesn't fucking matter you don't have jurisdiction if you don't meet the first ritchie factor for any uh relief for whether to classify or not all right cool one last question for you mm-hmm. my legal friend at both on both 11th circuit appeals the doj has a footnote at the very end that says and if you don't <laughs> agree you know where I, you know where i was going to go if if you don't agree with us Consider this a writ of mandamus. Now, I have, in all of the years I've been reading, you know, Trump legal documents and court filings and all of his allies, 
we always talk about, ooh, Rita Mandamus, Rita Mandamus. I'd never once seen it, I, and now I've seen it in print. Can you talk about that? Because they put it in this, they put it in this one too. Um, consider this a Rita Mandamus. What is a Rita Mandamus, and why is that pretty extraordinary to include? Okay, so as as by listeners call it a writ of Matt Damon. Yes, a writ um, of Matt Damon for <laughs> motions in lemonade. <laughs> um, a writ of mandamus, right? That the Latin root for that is mandate, right? To to tell uh, a, a governmental officer to do a thing. Okay, and the way in which you get a writ of mandamus is by proving that the said governmental officer has no discretion to behave other than in the way the writ would require. Oh, so their filing isn't a writ of mandamus. Consider this a motion to get, obtain a writ of mandamus against crazy judge Cannon? No, not, not exactly. No? Okay. Let me give you the best analogy that, that I can come up with. Suppose you file a lawsuit against me and I move to dismiss. It is very, very common, right? And, emo- and the difference between a motion to dismiss and a motion for summary judgment, as you know, and most of our listeners know, but but I'll remind them again, is a motion to dismiss says, I'm not going to argue any of the facts. We'll assume all of the facts pled in the complaint are true, and we will assume all inferences in favor of the plaintiffs against me, the party that's moving to dismiss. A motion for summary judgment says, okay, well, now, now we know, right, we've been through discovery, we know what the facts are. And there are no remaining disputed facts sufficient to take this to a jury. So one of the things that shows up in every motion to dismiss is a footnote kind of like this that says, hey, um, we may have stepped over the line and included some facts stuff. Uh, If we did that, you should consider this an early motion for summary judgment and dispose of it accordingly because you have the authority to do so. Right. You have the authority to take this thing that is titled motion to dismiss and to recharacterize it as a motion for summary judgment if you think that what we're really arguing is that some of these facts are so unlikely as to make like the law thing not there. So that's what this footnote is meant to do. This is meant to say, hey, um, we've construed this as an appeal, right? Um, and and the, the gravamen of our argument on appeal is lack of jurisdiction. But if you think that that's not appropriate, right? If you think that we don't have, that you don't have the authority to rule jurisdictionally on that question. And the reason has to do with the very convoluted argument uh, that, that Trump made in the petition to the Supreme Court, which was the idea that you appealed from Judge Cannon's order saying she was going to appoint a special master, but not from the order that actually appointed the special master. Mm-hmm. So that's what this footnote applies to. It says, all right, to the extent that you're willing to entertain this dumbass argument uh, that didn't persuade Clarence Thomas, um, you should know uh, that you have the power to consider this a petition for a writ of mandamus. We're making the same arguments, right? And you can then grant relief on that petition for mandamus. Because Judge Cannon has no discretion to appoint a special master here because there's no jurisdiction. Oh, okay, right? so, so if a, you don't think you have jurisdiction, if, you know, if, this, if you don't have jurisdiction to consider an appeal, consider this a petition for writ of mandamus where you can tell Judge Cannon to shove it based on that. Exactly. Right. Okay, that's what I meant. That's, yeah. Yep. 
I, I said motion instead of petition. No, no, no. no. I, it, it's again, you're as with the introduction, you're 99 percent <laughs> of the way there. No one else on earth would care about that distinction. But, you know, you have me on. I'm a, I'm a nitpick machine. <laughs> I so. saw that. I was like, ooh, rid of mandamus. That sounds like yep. something from He-Man. I love it is one of my favorite things to talk about because, you know, it, it so, for example, one of the places where you could get you could have gotten a, a writ of mandamus was the failure of the ODNI to turn over the uh, Ukraine whistleblowers uh, documents to Congress. Right. Mm-hmm. Because whenever the statute says shall turn over to Congress. Right. That's an indication of lack of discretion Mm. right and you can go to a court and you can say hey this doesn't say may or under consideration or will it says shall and shall means do it so i'm asking you to make this guy do this thing make this guy do their legal duty that is exactly cool well i don't i don't think it'll get to that i think they have jurisdiction (laughs) i think they explained why they have jurisdiction extremely well in the uh in the the findings uh, for the classified they have, juris- but- they have jurisdiction to evaluate this appeal, but not that Judge Cannon has jurisdiction right. in the first place. Right, right. Yeah. 11th Circuit <laughs> has jurisdiction. We know Judge Cannon right. doesn't, right. equitable or otherwise. Uh, although, again, would have been a much better argument with anomalous. All right, this has been so cool. Thank you. I, le- I did not realize it was the fucking 11th Circuit that gave the DOJ their best case citation in the first appeal that they used in the second appeal that's that's pretty that's pretty outstanding and again it gives me full confidence um that if they're willing to to rely on the precedent from chapman in the fifth circuit for the classified documents then then they have to and will for the rest of it i'm i'm i am equally confident and i should add the last bit is uh, that that uh, the DOJ has requested oral argument in this case, right? So the 11th Circuit granted expedited briefing. That's going to conclude in early November. Um, the, the fact that the DOJ wants an oral argument, you know, sort of ASAP in the, the first or, or second week of November, um, wonder wonder what else is happening in the first or second week of November. Yeah, and that, that was something else uh, interesting, too. They said, um, we know that you've, we, we, we are requesting argument. We think argument's important. Um, and uh, thank you for expediting that. There's no date set yet, but you have appointed a board. Uh, they have appointed a something to <laughs> help me out. What is it? Yeah, so here's what what's happened with respect to that is that this was a little bit of a surprise, right? When the DOJ moved to expedite the appeal and this panel of the 11th Circuit ap- approved that, their order approving that expedited appeal said uh, that it would be assigned to a special merits panel. That's right? it, that a is merits panel. A, a different three-judge panel. Uh, I mean, you know, you, you could roll it the same way again uh but a different three judge panel then issued the stay um now that's obviously bad news uh for for the doj in in the abstract right in the sense that um you know once you've gotten a home run like i i would not change i know there are two trump appointees on that panel but like i wouldn't change that panel for the world right, right? like they've they've told me yeah, you know, you win, you win, you couldn't possibly lose. Why would I want to bring on somebody else who might think differently? Um, but uh, but again, I, 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 I think the law here is so clear. It's one of the things that feels 
validating as, you know, you and I get called out all the time for, you know, having faith in institutions uh, where where it is warranted. I, I think we're plenty critical of institutions when not warranted. Um, but uh, but it's one of the things that feels good to say, hey, hey, look, like I, I, I get it. Judge Cannon blindsided all of us, but that doesn't mean the fix is in at every level of government and every level of administration. If, if it were, then, you know, we shouldn't do this podcast. We should just take to the streets and burn everything. To the ground. <laughs> like, uh, but but we don't have to do that yet. Like there's there's still there is still some hope left. There is still some uh, some rule of law and some checks and balances left. But when do you think that uh, that uh, oral argument would be? Because uh, Trump Trump asked for Trump asked for January. Well, Trump asked for January for to, to continue the briefing to January thing. I mean, like, yeah, it, it, that that position was insane. And once the Eleventh Circuit was like, yeah, yeah, yeah we we get this, we're going to do it right away. I, I would expect, like I said, first first uh, w- within a week of when the final briefing is due by the DOJ. So I think that take that that's then the second week. Uh, of November final um, briefing which, is know, November 17th so it would be so, before you, you think it yeah. would be before Thanksgiving I think you could do it before Thanksgiving the court the court is the court is not like you know uh your local high school where it's like we're gonna have class outdoors on Tuesday and you know then well Wednesday before Thanksgiving everybody gets to go home early like it, the court the court's gonna be busy the court's gonna be working so I would say uh, that week or, um, you know, but before December one is where I will put my, my, my marker down. Interesting. Uh, and, and I, uh, I, I and mean, it only took them two days to make a, d- a decision last time. I, I don't, I don't yeah. imagine it would take very long this time. Uh, and then of course, you know, Donald, well, when the D when the DOJ makes the decision, which I think they will, uh, to overturn the thing, I think immediately the department of justice will have access to those 11,000 documents. And then the yep. Supreme Court would actually have to reach in and stop it, just like they would have had to do with the classified documents. And I don't think they'll do that either. Nah, they've they've absolutely signaled they will not do that. And but we don't have to correct, wait until SCOTUS gets it, the thing. You, could, yeah. you can file an appeal on the merits, but this will be over. It will be moot long before the Supreme Court you know, rules on your, uh, on your petition for cert. Right. The, the only thing you can do at that point is then immediately shadow docket, go to the Supreme Court and say, hey, you have to stay the 11th Circuit's uh, dismissal here uh, of this case. And, uh, you know, the the fact that uh, the previous request to do exactly that, right, um, was was met with a 9-0 nope um, <laughs> is pretty strong. And, and again, remember, Clarence Thomas could have taken that himself. Yeah, right? he could have. Uh, uh, he could have said, uh, "I'm I'm issuing injunctive relief, uh, preventing uh, the uh, the 11th Circuit from issuing its stay order," and and not even Clarence Thomas was willing to do that. Mm. So mm. you know that 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 tells you a lot. Yeah, concur. And it would be the same Clarence Thomas because he's over the 11th Circuit. All right, we have gone a little bit over our hour, but that is okay. We had a lot <laughs> to talk about. It's it's great to have you back. Welcome back. Uh, I will be here on Monday to record for next week after being in D.C. So I will see you then. I'm so jealous. And w- can you can you tell us a little bit, anything at all about uh, your trip? No, uh, I can. No, tell okay. you, I can tell you that um, that they think that I have an important voice and uh, we need to talk. So, um, 
we're gonna we're gonna you know we're gonna be we're gonna be working some stuff out so uh it's it's gonna be fun i will take that i'm riding on such a high after this episode that uh i i, I will i will accept those uh veiled words and i am Truly excited. I, I I wish I could be there with I'm you. I'm super excited about this Chapman thing, and I don't have anyone else I can talk to about it. So thank you for being here, and thanks <laughs> to everybody for listening. We will be back next week. I've been Allison Gill. I'm Andrew Torres. And this has been Clean Up on Aisle 45. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. They might be giants that have been on the road for too long. Too long. And they might be giants aren't even sorry. Not even sorry. And audiences like the shows too much. Too much. And now they might be giants are playing their breakthrough album Flood. All of it. And they still have time for other songs. They're fooling around. Who can stop They Might Be Giants and their liberal rock agenda? Who? No one. Decide to pay for it with somebody else's money. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.